Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for many, many things in our walk as Christians. And in in so many cases, Father, when we think of giving you thanks as you command us to do in Scripture, our mind will turn to those aspects of our life that we enjoy and that are refreshing for us and pleasing to us. The things we enjoy having or doing, the many ways in which you make our life comfortable and pleasant on earth. And there are so many of those things, Father. We could never exhaust our thanks in those areas. But as we've been learning in your word this morning, Father, I'm also mindful of the need to thank you for the trials and to thank you for the difficulties and the struggles. Even in the midst of these things, Father, even at the time when we cannot imagine why they're good. But as your word taught us in last week and in weeks past, that we are to consider these things as discipline, as for our good, as coming from a good, holy, righteous Father who knows best for our needs. And even if we don't understand how it will be good, Father, I pray that our mind will always be turned toward the things we sang this morning in Scripture. Father, that we will know that uh, everything is good with us and where it matters most in the spiritual realm. And that we can be content with that even as we, we face difficulties. Let the word this morning, Father, encourage us along that path even further and strengthen us for the work that lies ahead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, I think this is maybe my favorite chapter of the book. In this chapter and in what's been leading up to it, we've been getting into some pretty powerful concepts. At times, very convicting things, very challenging things. I hope as well there's been a a dose of encouragement to balance that. But it's sober stuff. It's important stuff that we understand and that we live according to it. Last week, we learned that the Lord is always at work disciplining his children, for that's what a good father does. And in the day that the letter was written, the concern of this writer was principally around those Jewish Christians who were retreating from living out their life of faith and back to a dead works-based religion of Judaism. They did so to avoid persecution. But the writer wanted them to see that persecution in new light, as trials, as tests, as discipline for their good. Instead, they were at times shrinking back, as he said in an earlier chapter, from this new life. We know from history that this church was undergoing a lot of persecution. And it's likely that that persecution was their driving factor in these immature Christians shrinking back in a time of trial. So the writer has been giving them this sermon. And the sermon has been first on what faith is and what it requires. And then secondly, how it looks when it's lived out to the fullest and what its rewards are in the end. That was largely centered on chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Examples of men and women who lived out their life properly. But you notice as well when we studied that chapter, in almost every case, the writer was emphasizing the way trials and persecutions and difficulties and the like impinged upon those saints so that we could see their faith at work. If you take away all the trials and all the difficulties that are exemplified in that chapter, what are you left with? There's almost no story in most cases with those individuals. So in every example, you saw a man or a woman set aside the world's priorities and their own contentment and comfort in some cases, so as to be faithful in the face of a trial that God delivered them. So now, as we've moved into chapter 12, the writer has taken all of that background and he's applying it now for specific advice to you and I. How are you and I to react to trial? How are we to react to persecution? Do you run back to your old life? Do you run back to your old ways? Well, no, we know that's not the answer. Because that would be despising the discipline of the Lord, he says. Instead, 
we understand these trials are intended by God to teach us things. Things like perseverance and holiness. And he loves us. That's why he wants to teach us. And he knows the best way to do that. Now, the Lord's love for his children doesn't stop there, though. It's not as though he just throws us into the midst of a trial and like we throw a young child into the deep end of a pool and just hope that it all works out. That's not the love of a father that we know. No, he brings us trials, but then he also provides us with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who come alongside us to support us in that fight. Look at what the writer explains next where we pick up in chapter 12 at verse 12. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. As you probably heard me say in the past, Christianity is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. The Lord has designed the body of Christ so that we must work and fellowship together if we're going to excel in our individual walk of faith. You might try to go it alone, and you and I both know Christians who are doing that very thing right now, or have done it in the past, or slip into it from time to time. Choosing to forsake the gathering on Sundays, for example. Choosing to withhold transparency from one another within the body. Hiding our sorrows, hiding our struggles. Putting on the happy face on Sunday morning. And you can do that for a while. You can smile and struggle silently against the flesh and against the enemy and against the trials that the Lord brings. But when you do that, you have a date with failure somewhere down the line, forfeiting one of the greatest weapons you have in the battle against sin. And that is the encouragement and the strengthening that comes from others in the body of Christ. The writer asks this body that he wrote to and to us as well, of course, to work as one in staying the course that faith demands. He begins this with therefore, and that's important because what he's saying is because we all face trials, because it's common to all of us, because it's inevitable for all of us. He then says, work as a team. Specifically, he says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Now, you all may remember from our first Corinthians study how Paul uses the analogy of a human body in that book. To refer to the members of the body of Christ. He says we are not all an eye, we are not all an ear, we are not all a hand. You remember that, right? Well, the writer's doing the same thing here in Hebrews. He's comparing weak individuals within the body of Christ. People who are falling back. People who are struggling with sin or struggling with temptation or discouragement or whatever has come their way. And they're not pursuing, they're not persevering in their faith. They're slipping back and he calls those people, those individuals, the weak hands and the feeble knees in this body, in the body of Christ. But his command is work to strengthen those who are amongst us who are facing trials and contemplating that shrinking back, contemplating giving up on the race. Now, in the case of the churches he wrote to in the diaspora, the trials they faced were almost certainly the trials of persecution, being ostracized by Jewish family and Jewish friends who would no longer have fellowship with these new Christians who had forsaken Judaism or losing employment or losing their businesses because no one would come to do business with them anymore. Maybe even physical threats, perhaps even seeing some of their own family members receiving that same kind of mistreatment because of their confessions of faith. Things that would have made staying the course very hard. That was their trial. 
That was their test, things the Lord allowed them to experience for their spiritual good, just like he did the ones in the Hall of Faith. And we face our own versions of the same. The world and the enemy are always looking for some new way to put pressure on us so that living as a Christian becomes unacceptably difficult for us. Sooner or later, the enemy is going to find your weak spot. That's what he's good at. And when that happens, the Lord may give him some rein, some leash to go with in your life. And at that moment, you're going to suddenly become the weak hands in this fellowship. You're going to become the feeble knees for some period of time. For those moments, you have the body of Christ. You have the people in this room or in other churches, whomever they may be, who come alongside and, as the writer says, make straight paths for your feet. Now, think about the analogy for just a moment, the idea of a a straight path. And, And really implied in this is not just straight, but smooth, flat, not an incline, not rocky. Now, if you're walking on a path like that, the walk becomes much easier, wouldn't you agree? Much less effort. And more than just the fact that it's flat and smooth, it's straight. You stay on target. You stay focused on the goal. You don't wander off into things that are unhealthy for you or go to the wrong direction. And the writer adds on top of that that if you happen to have a weak limb and you're on a long walk, the potential for healing is much greater if the walk is easy than if it's a struggle. And so the writer extends the analogy and he says, we want to make straight paths so that the hurting limbs within our body will heal. Now, what does it mean to make a straight path then? How do we apply the analogy? Well, first, in the Bible, the idea of walking a straight path is commonly used to describe living in the truth of God's word. You may remember from the Gospels where John the Baptist is said to bring the truth of the coming Messiah. And Isaiah says that is making straight crooked paths in the desert. So the writer, I think, is emphasizing, again, the importance of knowing God's word. When we teach those who are weak and those who are feeble on the importance of not faltering, on the consequences of faltering, on the importance of staying with our witness, when we do that, we give them some understanding of what's at stake. So teaching is an important and probably the preeminent piece, but it's only one piece. There are others. We pray for one another, and what prayer accomplishes is it leads God to perhaps altering the circumstances of that person's challenge, of making the trial easier, perhaps even removing it. And then there are the physical needs of people in this body. Well, we have people who are suffering financially, and that's causing them to think differently about their walk as a Christian. We can come to their aid to some extent. Or if their home is flooded, as we've seen in this fellowship from time to time, or if there is some other physical ailment or illness in the family or tragedy or whatever, we come to the aid. Why face those things alone when God has provided a body of brothers and sisters with the means and the opportunity to do something about it? That's where we do our best for one another. And then there's other things like just companionship and encouragement and comfort. These are all ways in which the parts of the body work together, coming to the aid of those who are in hurting status. And let me tell you, friends, if you've been on the giving side of this on many occasions, let me assure you, there'll be a day when you're on the receiving end. So long as you are transparent, so long as you reveal who you are to your friends and to your neighbors in the church, so long as you give them opportunity to serve you, there will be a day when it's a reciprocal opportunity. And then the writer says, more importantly, maybe most importantly, Pursue peace with all men and sanctification. The word for pursue here in the Greek is really very vivid. I love this word. It means literally to chase down, 
chased down. It's not passive. It's not as if we sit here and we wait for it to come to us. We actively pursue peace. This same verb, pursue, is also being applied to the second noun in the sentence, to sanctification. So we pursue peace and we pursue sanctification. And the writer says the reason we do that is because we will see the Lord face to face one day when we are fully sanctified. That's what he means by without which we will not see the Lord. When we face the Lord in the future, we will face him in a glorified place, a body that is without sin. And it'll be that way because of the Lord's power in us, his power to resurrect us, his power to glorify us and fully sanctify us. It's all his. But without that positional sanctification, we'd have no hope to face him. Because we have it, we have the assurance of it, the writer says, we must spend our days now chasing down every opportunity we can to be holy, to live up to what we know will be ours one day, pursuing peace among men and the sanctification that the Lord will grant us one day. When we pursue peace, it means pursuing the process of living in harmony with others, not only in the body of Christ, but in general. Pursue that goal of peace Most of us pursue that as a regular routine in the church or with friends or with family. But the concept here is that if we are not intimately associated, if we are not personally concerned with the relationships we have in the church, there is little opportunity for the strengthening process to result. If you remain at arm's length from those in the body of Christ by how infrequently you participate or by how you conduct yourself when you participate, if we know you with a handshake and a smile and little more, then when the hurting begins, there'll be no opportunity for anybody to help you. And probably little reason for you to open up and explain what you need. But if you are pursuing peace, if you are pursuing obedience to Christ's commands, if you chase that down, it's it's like chasing a school bus down that's leaving without you. If you go after it with that kind of urgency, with the same feeling like, I can't miss this, then, the writer says, we'll be in a position to fulfill the needs of those in the body. And of course, in the process, you're gaining eternal reward in your obedience. There's always that to consider. Now, with that, the writer's made his best argument for the need to have perseverance and faithfulness. He's explained why it's important. He's given us examples to emulate. He's called us to assist one another in the face of God's discipline. He's laid it all out for us, and the argument could not be clearer. So now the question becomes, what happens when we don't do it anyway? That's often been his pattern, remember? Teach, and then to offer a warning. Teach, and then to offer a warning. Well, we've reached the fifth and final warning in this letter. One that speaks to the consequences of not pursuing your walk of faith in the midst of trial and testing. Verse 15, the writer says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, before we dive into the specifics of this warning, let's look carefully at first who the writer is speaking to, and then secondly, who he's speaking about. Notice in verse 15, he addresses church leadership. Now, you wouldn't have seen that necessarily in the text, but when he begins with the words, see to it, that phrase in the Greek is episkopos. And it may sound familiar to you because it's from that word we get Episcopal, 
as in the Episcopal Church, for example. Episcopal literally means a position of authority, an overseer, someone who has oversight responsibilities in the church. So we use the word elder in the Greek, that's presbyteros, Presbyterians. And we have overseer, which is episkopos, or again, another word for leadership in the church. What the writer is saying is, I want the church leadership to do what I'm about to ask, to watch over for this outcome. In a sense, he says, see to it that the following does not happen in the church. And then secondly, notice who he's speaking about. It's a representative person, a third person here in the church, someone who has, as he said, come short of the grace of God or do not allow them, as it were, to come short of the grace of God. Now, from the Greek, we could also say, watch diligently over the body to ensure no one lacks the grace of God. Now, at first, when you hear that coming short, lacking the grace of God, at first, you're going to want to hear it this way. You're going to hear it as God speaking about someone who just missed the gospel altogether. Here's the grace of God, or as we might be tempted to assume, here's salvation, and they've come short of it. They just haven't got there. In other words, we would be tempted to conclude he's speaking about an unbeliever. That they're falling short, in other words, of coming to know the Lord. But the phrase coming short in Greek has another equally valid way to be translated compared to the way you may have it in your English Bible. It can be translated as failing in the grace of God. Failing in the grace of God. In other words, someone neglecting the grace of God, neglecting their salvation, neglecting all that comes from it. I want you to imagine a Christian who has walked away from the Lord in the sense that something in their life has caused them to completely repudiate the lifestyle of a Christian. Like the ones in the writer's day who had come face to face with persecution so severe that the only way they could escape it was to stop claiming to be Christian and to go back pretending under the old ways of Judaism, which was allowed in their day. They just kind of give up, go back to the life they knew before Christ. That person is falling short of the grace of God, not making full use of it. They're neglecting it. Now, when someone in the body makes this decision, they don't just damage their own walk. That's self-evident, right? They're injuring themselves by this decision. But the writer says they have the potential to bring others with them. That's why the writer says this individual becomes a root of bitterness in the church. When life is tough and the trials come upon us like one wave after another, we're going to feel like giving up because it'll seem like the easier option to retreat than to go forward, to escape rather than to deal with it. In the writer's day, the Jewish believers had this same struggle. In our day, as I've said already, our struggles may be different, but they're no less powerful. You grow bitter at your circumstances, you succumb to self-pity and despair, you make excuses, you rationalize poor behavior, and in the process, you potentially become a root for bitterness in the church body. Perhaps we only cause trouble among those that are close to us and know us well, or perhaps it becomes more of a public fall, in which case there's all kinds of collateral damage in the body of Christ. Have we not seen this? Have we not seen this in the body of Christ, generally speaking, those famous falls Of one kind or another. And look at the collateral damage. Whether it stays private or whether it goes public, that person is a root of bitterness in the sense that they are just the start of something that can grow if left unchecked. They're a root. It holds the potential to defile many, the writer says. The word defile means to stain, to contaminate. It means to cause others to make a similar mistake. Let's all be honest about this for a minute. To walk in the faith that God has given us and to do it in the best possible way, is a real challenge because the enemy makes it so. 
And the culture around us is, is steeped with his way of thinking so that we always have friction in the way we want to live according to the word of God. And knowing that, when you find others around you falling away, tell me that doesn't make it a little harder for you to persevere, especially if that person is close to you. I like to remember the time I used to jog and try to run. You always were more successful in keeping up that challenge when you had a partner. Especially if you ran early in the morning. I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but it's crazy. Don't do it. But if you're going to run early in the morning, you'd look at that alarm clock going off an hour before you really needed to be up for work. But you're trying to get up early to work out or whatever. And you see that alarm go off. And in your mind at that moment, there's always that same dilemma. Do I turn it off, go back to bed, or do I actually get up? The thing that gets you up more than anything else is knowing that in about 10 minutes, your partner is going to be at the door knocking, saying, come on, let's go. That in itself is a huge incentive to do the right thing because there's someone else doing it with you. And you know what? That person, when their alarm went off, was saying exactly the same thing. That's just one simple example. But in the body of Christ, the stakes are so much higher. And it is true. How many of you have ever said, you know, I wouldn't come to church except so-and-so is going to be there and I, I better be there too. Here's a classic way to make sure you don't ever miss church. Get so involved that they can't do church without you. We're talking here about believers who fail to take the writer's advice on how to face trials and tests that the Lord brings. That's who we're talking about. We're not talking about an unbeliever hiding in our midst. We're talking about you and I or others like us who are hurting, who are fearful, who are tired, and in some cases who are wavering. They need our help, not our condemnation. They may not ask for help, though they should. But we may need to offer it in a polite and considerate way. They know the grace of God, but they are at risk in neglecting it. You know, that person who hasn't been here for a while, what happened to them? Or that person who comes, but it's so erratic, you wonder, where in their behavior do they not have time on Sundays to be at church regularly? What is what's behind that? Is it incidental? Is it just business? Is it normal? Or is there something deeper? Or even if they are here all the time, they're not smiling. Never. Uh, Particularly during the sermon. Amen. Amen. Uh, Or their relationships seem strained or they're not opening up when you ask them questions or, you know, not that everyone has to be an open book all the time. But when I see things that make me wonder, there's something in that person's life right now and, and they're here, but they're not here. Or they're just not here at all. Those are the people we need to find a way to help. That's the purpose we're here for. Not to be gossipy, not to pry, but to be available. This is the group we strengthen. Friends, doing nothing is not an option. It's not an option because we love them, because we want to care for them. And also because it's a potential root of bitterness in the church. The writer uses an example. He refers to Esau as an example of what can happen when this problem is left unchecked, unresolved. And he says they are like Esau in that they are immoral and godless. Now, those two terms are incredibly harsh. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, they're part of the reason why many who have looked at this passage have come away believing we must be talking about an unbeliever. Well, notice first that the writer's entire argument here, where we are now in chapter 12, this entire argument has started all the way back in chapter 10. He hasn't suddenly launched onto something brand new out of the blue. He's been focusing the whole way on believers who retreat from their walk of faith, right? 
And then there's been no time in these chapters in which the writer has moved away from his concern over believers to some other conversation about unbelievers. So even though we've reached this point where it seems as though he's done that, we'd have a hard time explaining how you move his train of thought into this realm. It doesn't seem to fit with anything he's been talking about. And then you have Esau. And Esau is the real sticking point because we know from Genesis that Esau is an unbeliever. He is a man who did not know the Lord. So how do you apply the example of a man who is an unbeliever to the case of a disobedient, wavering believer? What is the application that the Lord is trying to make here? Well, the key to understand this is that the writer is not drawing a comparison between Esau's nature as a human being and the nature of this person we're talking about in the church. Rather, he's drawing a comparison between the behavior of Esau and the behavior of the church person and the consequences of that behavior in both cases. First, notice what Esau did so famously. He traded away something very valuable for something very trivial. Remember, he was the firstborn in the family. So by convention, as the firstborn, he was the first in line to have the birthright of Isaac, even though the Lord had said it would not be his, by convention, he had it. That was an incredibly valuable thing he had. It guaranteed Esau that he could have the eternal riches, the inheritance that God had already promised to Abraham and Isaac. Now, this is provided that he had kept it, which we know was never the point. But in conventional terms, he had it. Think about this. If he didn't actually have it, then Jacob wouldn't have had to trick him out of it. Right. It was his, at least initially. But what did Esau do with it? He was willing to trade this incredibly valuable, eternal reward for what? A bowl of stew. Could anyone make a worse bargain? Well, actually, yes. Yes. Any Christian who would willingly trade their eternal reward for the sake of some temporary earthly escape or pleasure is making exactly the same bargain Esau made, albeit a believer making one versus an unbeliever. But still, in the purpose of his application here, it's the same idea. Whether that escape be from persecution or relief from some financial pressure or scorn from families or friends or classmates or whatever is driving us to think that living a life outside our witness is preferable to living in our witness, despising the discipline of the Lord versus persevering in the discipline of the Lord. Whatever reason we have for making that escape, what we have done is traded something eternal for something very temporary. We can look down on Esau, but have we ever considered we're in doing exactly the same thing at times? The writer says when someone does that in the body of Christ, they are immoral and godless. Now, the word immoral is pornos. We get the word pornography from that same root. It means someone who engages in illegitimate activity of a moral nature, illegitimate sexual activity or otherwise. So how does he apply this to Christian? Well, they are immoral in the sense that they are living a lie when they depart from their faithful dependence on the Lord and retreat to the world. When you devise your own means of stepping out from under the Lord's trials, you're living a lie. You're convincing yourself that life is great, even though you just made a tremendous sacrifice in eternal terms. Your life is not great if you're escaping and despising the discipline of the Lord. No more so than that child I mentioned in last week's example, who's been grounded. And despite being grounded by his parents for good reason, he sneaks out of the window every night and goes off and does his own thing anyway. He's living a lie. He's telling himself he escaped. Everything's great. Back to normal. Good for me. No, not good for you. Not in the long run. It's immoral. 
because our relationship with the Lord is illegitimate in that sense. Secondly, he says we're godless. Godless here just means to live apart from God. The Greek word for godless can be translated worldly. It can be translated unsanctified. These are all synonyms. In other words, we're living as if we don't know the Lord. We're living without his authority and his counsel. We're pretending we don't have to answer to him. We're living like the world lives. Every unbeliever is godless by nature, yes. But even a Christian can live in a godless manner when they do these sorts of things. And that's who you become when you don't face the trials God gives. Finally, notice the lesson of Esau at the very end. At some point, as you know, the story goes, Esau realized that he had made a bad bargain. And he had despised his birthright, something very valuable. Once he realized that mistake, what did he do? Well, the text says, like we read it back in Genesis, that he sought to try to undo it somehow. He went to his father Isaac and said, do you not leave any of the blessing for me? Is there not something still there for me? He was determined to regain what he had lost, and he sought it with tears, the writer said. He was so despondent at recognizing what he had lost. He was doing everything he could to recover it, but as you know, and as the writer tells us, it was too late for any of that. No matter how hard he sought to regain his birthright, no matter how much he cried over it, the birthright he had previously despised, he could not get it back. Friends, sometimes the things you toss aside are gone forever. And if by our disobedience we decide to forfeit some portion or all of our eternal inheritance made available to us on the basis of our obedience, then when we reach our day of judgment and we stand before the Lord, we're going to realize what a foolish bargain we made. And I think the point of the writer's application is, in that moment when you realize that those earthly comforts, those earthly satisfactions that we sought in place of what God had called us to do, we're going to realize how they've amounted to nothing. We may wish that we could go back and change all that. It'll be too late. That's why you're called, that's why we're called to steal ourselves in the face of trials and tests, strengthening others when it's their turn to face those things, serving a God knowing he loves us. He saved us and he wants to show us wonderful things. But for this short time we live on this earth, he wants us to endure many trials in a fallen and sinful world because it's the way he shows himself to that world. They want to suppress the truth. They want to tempt us into disobedience. They want to persecute us just like they did Christ. Let them do it. I'm going to count it all joy. I'm racking up something in my heavenly account if I handle it properly. The enemy's crafty. He has a lot of ways to bring you to that moment of test, that moment of crisis where you decide, is my faith worth it today? And I'll tell you from my personal experience, it rarely happens all at once. It's usually a slippery slope, as they say. Something changes in our walk just a little, then a little more, then a little more, then a little more. Next thing you know, we look back and we wonder, how did I get where I am now? What happened? Everyone faces those moments eventually. Together, you persevere and pass the test with flying colors. But if we're pretending these things don't happen, if we try to face them alone, friends are going to fall. Sooner or later, you're going to crumble because your flesh isn't strong enough and the enemy is a lot more powerful. You shrink back and then potentially become a root of bitterness in the body of Christ, taking others with you. Let's pray that we would ask the Lord to send us friends brothers and sisters in the faith, who will remind us patiently of the things in God's word that tell us to fight on in the face of trial. And ask God to send us prayer warriors who will come alongside us to win that battle on our behalf. And ask the Lord to send us encouragers and counselors and helping hands to strengthen us. Send us support in whatever form. Let's make sure no one comes up short of the grace of God. And if you're that one this morning who is 
in that time of need. You're the weak hand. You're the feeble knee among us. You don't have to do that alone. You don't have to tell everyone, but you need to work with someone because that's why we're here. And that's how you'll have that good and faithful result when you stand before the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, strengthen us. Father, we know that there are so many in here who love you and seek to follow you every day. And they're here, Father, as evidence of that desire. And even among those who are not here today, for whatever reason, there are even many of them who, who follow you in a very honest and sincere way, Father. But we also know that amongst us, even at times us, uh, we are following you in a wavering way. Where we want to give up and shrink back, forget it all. Where self-pity takes over. Where sorrows overwhelm us. And where the whole thing starts to become more work than it seems worth. That's when the word comes back to our minds, Father. And I pray, Lord, you would do that with the Spirit. You'd bring us back to this reminder. That first and foremost, we serve a good and loving God. A Father who disciplines us for our own good. And that life is meant to be a trial and a test. So that as we please him in the passing of these tests, he is righteous and good to reward us according to his purpose. And. Knowing that, Father, we just pray that you would keep our minds set on eternity, understanding these things in a proper way so that we will not miss the point. And then, Lord, knowing we don't do this alone, I pray we'd have the courage to be transparent with our brothers and sisters from time to time, that we would confess our sins, that we would acknowledge our weakness, that we'd ask for help, and that we would recognize that the help that comes in response is divinely intended to strengthen us and make sure that we can sustain the fight. Give us confidence to know that we will not be judged and our brothers and sisters will not treat us wrongly, but will love us in the midst of our trials. Give us these things, Father, so that we can please you and we can be a church that reflects you to the world. And I thank you for the reminder out of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.